I'm Nancy. And I'm Catherine. And this is Side Effects. So last week, we talked about the turning point, the moment where you realize that what you thought was normal goes out the window. This week, we're going to talk about the people who had the chance to back out, go the other way, and try to maintain a sense of normalcy, but instead went all in. To kick things off on part one, we're going to hear from Jordan Flowers, who, if you'll remember, is a robotics technician at Amazon. As conditions at his warehouse got worse and worse, he knew there would be a breaking point. Let's take a listen to our first clip, a video Jordan live-streamed to Facebook. I know. That's how much my job stressed me out. I'm, I'm only 21 and I got a full-grown beard. That's how much my job stressed me out. It's March 30th. Jordan Flowers is outside the Amazon warehouse on Staten Island. They call it JFK 8. He's on strike in protest of Amazon's hazardous working conditions during the pandemic. Jordan has a medical condition where his white blood cells attack his body. Back in February, when conditions in the warehouse became too unsafe to continue working, he had to leave his post as a robotics technician. He was joined by other workers who were dissatisfied with how Amazon is responding to the COVID-19 crisis. Not caring about the health and safety, there's people sick in the building, and not caring about this pandemic, this epidemic, this virus, and it affects, and it's affecting us the hardest here in New York, right here in Staten Island, and they don't care at all. And I walked out because Amazon lied. They told me there was one case in the building, and it's actually 11, so I don't feel safe. So I'm seeing things inside there. And I'm doing this because of my health and my fellow workers' health as well. It should be closed down, it should be cleaned properly, and we should be working in an environment we can't even get gloves from the machine. The strike was organized by Jordan and three other JFK 8 workers, Chris Smalls, Derek Palmer, and Gerald Bryson. In early March, while Jordan was on leave, the first worker at Amazon JFK 8 tested positive for COVID-19 but the warehouse workers weren't notified by Amazon until weeks later. This was the first red flag for Jordan and his team. After hearing the news, he immediately began thinking about what he could do to help keep his coworkers safe. You know, I'm now concerned that why didn't they text no one or warn anybody? So now that's, that's becoming a, a growing concern. And that, that's how we started organizing about what should we do, just us four, as a start. How, how can we make an impact just for our workers? The number of workers who tested positive grew larger and faster each passing week. But still, Amazon showed little concern for protecting their warehouse employees, maintaining productivity levels that don't allow enough time to wash hands and properly clean equipment after use. Workers also claim Amazon fails to properly enact contact tracing protocol by using inconclusive security camera video. A recent estimate shows that JFK 8 reached over two dozen positive cases. Me, Derek, Chris, Gerald, we all got on the phone. We started talking about, you know, we, we have to do something now. 
the fact that all these people are tested positive. Amazon isn't, they're not showing no concern. They're just sending people home quarantine. They're not trying to clean the warehouse. And they, it caught a lot of our attention, but most workers in the warehouse, they, they're concerned too. They were afraid to stand up because of retaliation. And while this is going on, they had a party going on in the warehouse and they showed no safety concerns. Like I said, they had a, they had a whole party that, before this whole thing started. And this is around the same time our first dude tested positive. With a new sense of urgency, Jordan and his team began organizing. Jordan was in charge of representing immunocompromised, vulnerable workers. He spent most of his time speaking to employees with medical issues, trying to understand their concerns with warehouse conditions and how his team could help. We have, we, we have already three-fourths of the company that have children. Three-fourths, has, like me, have medical problems. Other has uh, families, like parents they have to go home to. These, we know that these people aren't going to take action. Someone should that has a medical problem. And like I said, people with retaliation, no one was really going to stand up. So this was the time for me to step up, show leadership, and stand for the people with medical problems. After listening to the warehouse staff's worries, Jordan, Chris, Derek, and Gerald laid out a list of demands for Amazon. Our demands were the simplest anyone could do. Shut down the warehouse for two weeks, get clean, have us paid for two weeks while we're out, retro pay for people to stay home for me like three months, and also have these workers tested. Amazon should be responsible that they should pay for medical bills. And on top of that, they should be held, held accountable for the people that are dying now who are workers for Amazon. They, they didn't take no action. They, they basically waited three, they waited three weeks. So April 13th was the first time they started giving out equipment. And they, they, we had to ask for it. I was hearing coworkers that they had to ask for getting face masks, which is a shame. We should, like we're in a time that if you're saying you're protecting us, we shouldn't have to ask for equipment. You offer us vests, our orange vest, if we don't have one. We have box cutters. We, we, we have that all in vending machines throughout the warehouse. But we have to ask for a face mask is really, really a shame. Jordan's team hit a brick wall. Amazon would not listen to their needs. So they began organizing under a different angle, with a new purpose, to force Amazon to pay attention to their voices. We started talking to people inside the warehouse while I was home. We're like, hey, you know, we want to protest to make noise for our warehouse that our workers could come out and support us. So we're, we're organizing. We got in contact with a group named Make the Road and New York Community Change. They actually were the ones that got us the media. The CNN, Fox News, uh, Spectrum One, which is Eyewitness News for New York City in the tri-state area. They planned to stage their walkout on March 30th, a Monday, because that was the day a majority of the warehouse staff would be scheduled for work. The night before the strike, Jordan and his team were full of nervous anticipation. Would their coworkers join? Would the strike be impactful enough to catch the attention of Amazon executives? Chris Mose and Derek, they actually live, they both live in Jersey, and they were actually saying in the car, I remember them telling me this, that they felt like this wasn't going to work, that you know, this wasn't going to be a successful protest. Me, on the other hand, I had, I had a little hope. I didn't have that much hope. I felt like, you know, we're just going to go there. They're going to listen to us. 
that people are still going to be bribed with the $2 raise and the double pay overtime, that they're still not going to work with us or even stand alongside us, we were probably going to last no more than probably three or four weeks. Gerald, on the other hand, had the same thoughts. We probably wasn't going to last no more than three or four weeks. Even the night before, we, we called each other, and we were just like, you know, we're just going to have to go out there, make as much noise, because we, we had every TV station. Well, I can't say every TV station, but we had a majority of the news networks out there that we're going to have to make as much noise to the media to see if we can get anywhere above and beyond. And finally, after weeks of planning and organizing, the day of the walkout arrived. We started at 11.30, ended at 12.30. Uh, we did it during the lunch break. So we get 30-minute lunch breaks. So the inbound team gets 11.30 to 12. The outbound gets 12 to 12.30. So that was, like I said, that was our plan tactic that we know everybody's going to come downstairs. If everyone comes downstairs, we can get them while we protest. And it was a nice day. So everyone was really outside too. So going up to it, we already had, we called the media. We made sure, hey, be here at this time. We'll be outside protesting. Uh, we made sure they were there. We made sure, you know, us four, the main four was there, the, the, the main four was there. We made sure that any worker that was coming outside or, you know, looking from the windows, hey, join us. That, uh, you know, we, we, don't, we don't need you to come talk to us and come protest with us today. We don't need you today. Or if you want to join us today, come stand next to us today. Even if so, just go home. Just please go home. We were, we're telling, we were literally telling coworkers that first protest, please go home. We actually had a successful walkout. We had 50 to 60 people walk out. And I think from that same day, we actually had another warehouse, EWR9, that walked out. And that following April 1st, we had DTW1, DCH1 walk out. And we had another warehouse from, uh, what is it, Detroit? Yeah, Detroit. So four other warehouses walked out right after us. Images of Jordan at the protest show him wearing a mask and gloves and holding a neon pink sign that reads, treat your workers like your customers. It was, it was just to let them know that you, everyone has a voice. Everyone, everyone has a voice in this world. You shouldn't have to, you shouldn't have to be, feel belittled because of a company. We stand together as a team. We're not better than no one. We're not higher than no one, even though Chris is the face. But he knows that the four of us started this, and we're going to be like this till, till the end of the fight. Later that same day, Amazon fired Chris Smalls for, quote, violating social distancing guidelines and putting the safety of others at risk. Two days later, on April 2nd, Vice News obtained an internal memo from a meeting among Amazon executives, which detailed a smear campaign against Chris Smalls. Amazon General Counsel David Zapolsky was quoted as saying, quote, He's not smart or articulate, and to the extent the press wants to focus on us versus him, we will be in a much stronger PR position than simply explaining for the umpteenth time how we're trying to protect workers. In next week's episode, we'll dive deeper into Amazon's retaliation against Jordan and Chris, as well as the effects of the strike, from gathering the support of huge political figures like Cory Booker and Bernie Sanders, to starting their own company to further their mission.
Part two, Allie. Our producer, Joshua Chan, has this next story. On March 12th, Allison McGill's call for volunteers to deliver groceries for Washington, D.C.'s at-risk population netted thousands of retweets overnight. Hundreds of D.C. residents contacted Allie asking how they could contribute to the initiative that is now called Food on the Table. I did not expect this when I sent that tweet out. I just wanted to be helpful. I wasn't expecting so many people to really respond to it. It just is so funny how what I started it with and what it looks like now is just completely different. I didn't have a huge Twitter following, so I wasn't expecting, I don't know, for it to hit that good nerve. The viral tweet quickly gathered local attention, and Allie found herself swarmed with media groups that wanted to interview her on the developing story. Uh, A lot of media that weekend. Um, Again, it was early on, so I think it hit a good nerve. Um, I had local, a lot of phone calls too. Sunday, I was on an LA TV station, LA News, uh, KTLA. And then that Monday, I was on local news again, newspaper articles, some national ones reached out as well. In addition to handling the media, Allie needed to quickly find a way to handle her growing network of volunteers. The day after the tweet went viral, Allie took to Facebook, posting a call for organizers in a DC neighborhood group. Amber Seiler, a then-stranger on the internet, responded, and the two gathered at Allie's house shortly after. Here's Amber to tell us her story of how she got involved with Food on the Table. In uh, my normal life, non-pandemic life, I'm actually a documentary television producer. Um, You know, I've worked for places like uh, Hartees Medical Institute and and um, National Geographic and Discovery and organizing is in my blood. I think that a lot of things changed on that first day when I was at Allie's house. I expected when I responded to that Facebook post that I might go grocery shopping for senior citizens once in a while. That first day I spent at Allie's house going through volunteers and and finding out that that tweet had gone viral and that there was this response. And, you know, while I was there during that day, there were news programs coming by and filming interviews with her. And there were emails just coming in and coming in and coming in. And I just realized, okay, this this is a much bigger organizational heavy lift than I had expected, but it, I, I never once thought, I don't want to do this. I just was like, okay, let's go. And from that day to now, I think that there have been two days where I didn't work. And every day that I did work, I probably put in at least 12 hours. It's just been that busy. For the first four weeks of food on the table, almost all of the administrative work fell on Amber's shoulders. She was responsible for creating an infrastructure that could organize thousands of volunteers and grocery requests. At first, it seemed like a logistical nightmare, but Amber fell back on her previous experience as a television producer and got to work. 
I think that what sort of saved me at the beginning is I didn't look at it as I have to create this thing that I have never created before and I have no skill set for. I looked at it as, okay, this is sort of producing this very large scale, um, you know, event that's going to be happening, except the event is ongoing, like <laughs> in perpetuity, maybe. So how do I produce this event or this, you know, show, which is what I'm norm- normally used to producing. And I think if I had stopped and thought, I am creating this group out of nothing and I've never done this before, I would have sort of frozen. But because I just looked at it as, a, you know, an event that had to happen, I just fell back on, all right, what's my favorite thing in the world? Spreadsheets. Amber relied on those spreadsheets to keep track of the volunteers and the incoming requests. To an outsider, it may not seem like a lot of information to monitor, but there were many factors that needed to be considered to keep the organization efficient and effective. We have all this information from them on when they signed up, their name, their uh, phone number, uh, email. And then we have information like, what neighborhood do you live in? Do you have a car or do you prefer to only do stuff in your neighborhood? We also have, is there anything else you'd like us to know? And there's like a gold mine of information and on that column. Uh, it's really interesting. People telling us everything from, uh, you know, they are returning Peace Corps volunteers. They speak Spanish. That became super key because we, uh, most of our help requests come from Spanish only families. And so it became clear very quickly that we had to have uh, an administrative team that spoke Spanish that we could have doing these calls with these families because I don't speak any Spanish. There's a wealth of information from the grocery requests as well. While those who request groceries do have to fill out a preliminary form, volunteers also do intake calls to better understand the requests and to see if they are eligible for grocery services. The process of matching a volunteer to request can get really complicated. We need to find out, like, are they unable to leave their home? Like, do they have COVID? Uh, How many people are in their family? Are there children? Do they need diapers? And then every single request that we fulfill in these spreadsheets, we move to a separate tab that it's completed because we have to track every person that we've fed because we feed them over and over again. And we need to know every time and we need to keep track of, you know, do they have COVID now? So, I mean, it gets, it's a lot of information. As the weeks went by, food on the table started running essential errands besides grocery shopping, like getting household supplies picking up medication, or even dog walking. For those that needed help, but are not in the at-risk demographic that makes them eligible for deliveries, a volunteer would supply them with an extensive 13-page guide on local resources. My colleague, Jane Bloom, who is literally the other heavy lifting part of this, she created the resource guide, and it's the most detailed resource guide in the DC area, I think. And we walk these people through it because it's pretty overwhelming. If you're a family in DC, you may not speak any English. You have a a family of six to feed and you're trying to find resources. You're like, okay, there's, there's a place to get groceries, but they're only open one day a week for one hour. So we walk them through all of that and give them all the resources that they need. If we can't deliver them groceries, we're still going to make sure they get fed. 
Since then, Amber has brought on more administrative help from colleagues. Instead of doing all the intake calls by herself, Amber now has 20 team leaders volunteering for shifts to space out the workload. And while the work can be emotionally draining, it can lead to some of the most rewarding connections. There was a woman who heard me on the local radio station and a woman who doesn't have television, doesn't have a computer. All she has is her flip phone and her radio. And she heard me on the radio and she called the radio station and she said, how can I get in touch with that woman? I, I, I need some help. She had no groceries. She had uh, a physical, not an ailment, but an injury such that she couldn't chew anything. She was having a terrible time with like her jaw. And the only food she had at home was either food that she had to chew, which she couldn't, or she had cans of chicken noodle soup that she would just drink the broth. She couldn't even eat the noodles and the chicken. She would just, and she was wasting away. And she's like, I have, I didn't know who to call. She's like, I haven't eaten for really for a long time. And I was like, of course we'll help you. I personally went and got her groceries because I realized she lived just a few blocks from me. And I went and I got her every soft food I could find. It's just, you don't realize how many people out there are completely alone and feel so desperately isolated until a situation like this happens. And it makes you want to just scoop them all up in your arms and, and just not help them in the sense of like, you're this benefactor, but just be family with them. Just like help them like family would. That affection hits Amber even harder because she too has struggled with her health. I went through a period of time about five years ago where I had this like horrible series of health problems where I was in and out of the hospital and I was having a ton of surgeries. I think that so many people don't have an understanding of what it means to have the rug pulled out from under them through no fault of their own. I mean, I don't want anyone to have to experience that if they don't have to, but it is, um, it's, disorienting, it's terrifying, and it is like, what are we here for if we're not here to lift up our fellow human beings? And I had friends that really helped me when I was going through that time. And also some strangers who just were like, oh, hey, I, you know, you don't know me, but can I help? It was unbelievable feeling as though you were not all alone in the world. And I don't want any of these people to feel like they're all alone in the world. While Amber has mostly been spending her time handling administrative work, Allie has been on the field making deliveries for people who can't go outside. Most of the deliveries are contactless as a preventative measure. So while most people could not express their appreciation in person, they still found different ways to say thanks. There was one run where several of us volunteers, there were multiple families that really had no food. Um, somebody called on their behalf. They didn't speak English, um, and I don't speak multiple languages. I wish I did. Um, we had, I think, two Spanish speakers with us. 
but we had to split up. It was a big, big run. I mean, it was 20 families in one shopping trip. Um, and we got an email from the person that called us in the beginning that knew of these families uh, being in that situation um, and just said that he got phone calls in tears of people crying, just thanking us. And that that was really rewarding. That was a really hard run logistically. It did make me feel good to know, not that people are crying, but tears of joy are good. Allie McGill and Amber Seiler, two central figures of Food on the Table. If you want to help out, you can go to foodonthetabledc.com. Besides those who are focused on helping their communities directly, our next guests, Jonathan and Jerry, want to give a leg up to students nationwide. What that's been like when internships and job offers are rescinded due to coronavirus. In part three, one salting. Hello, everybody. Man, everyone is tuning in. Woo! This is what I like to see, man. This is this is awesome. All right, everybody. Yeah, Georgia. Where else we got? Georgia, San Jose, Phoenix, Seattle, Atlanta, California, Fremont, Canada, Germany, dude. Bye. Dang. Alameda, India. All right. That's Jonathan and Jerry hosting their first of a series called One Salting Project 2020. On their live stream, they ask viewers to comment with their locations and are calling them out as they log in. This is our summer initiative for those people who have their internship canceled, furloughed, or maybe even just haven't landed an internship. This is an opportunity for you to get project experience on your resume, right? This is not official employment, but rather it is a an ability for you to write project experience and have some sort of experience to show in the fall recruiting cycle because we know that it's going to come around in one, you know, two to three months. So with that, let's dive in. Though they seem like experts on the live stream, hosting online events was something that they were initially skeptical about. Prior to COVID, most of One Salting's events were held in person. Schools would reach out and invite them to give presentations on job-seeking strategies. They'd fly out, hold a workshop with a group of 70 or so students, catch up with some old friends and mentees in the area, and then travel home. Jerry and I are very interactive with our workshops. We'll actually call on people and be like, hey, like, what do you think about this? Hey, could you read from the board, etc." And we felt like those in-person interactions were better because we would walk with them step by step and be like, oh, hey, go search us on LinkedIn, go find the hiring managers for XYZ. I think at the beginning of COVID, we were like, oh my gosh, you know, how is this going to affect the way that we um, engage with students? Because at the end of the day, we felt like the medium in which we present was our true selling point. And then we felt like that, that energy that we brought really hooked the students in and really allowed the students to absorb the message much better. And so when we were like, we have to shift everything virtually, we we're like, oh shoot, you know, we've tried virtual things before. It wasn't as interactive, it wasn't as engaging. And so that was a thing that was really top of mind for us, but thankfully it's worked out. 
In early March, as students across the country started seeing cancellations to their internships, many weren't sure what they should do next. Should they stay at home and do nothing? Should they try to find another internship to fill their summer? And if so, what was the best way to do so remotely? Some started using LinkedIn, looking for resources on how they could deal with and recover from the setback. Eventually, many found their way to consulting. The growth that we experienced post-COVID was nothing like we've ever seen before. The reason why is because people were furloughed, people were getting laid off, people had their internships canceled. And as everyone has been going through this, the more we began to realize that people began to look to us for answers, right? They were asking us, hey, how can I pivot from this? Hey, can you help me find an internship? Hey, can you help me find a full-time offer? They quickly realized that their audience was no longer the 70 or so people in the workshop room. It was now hundreds of students who were messaging them every day, seeking advice. So what we did was, because a lot of people would inquire about like, I got my job rescinded because of COVID-19. I, you know, I haven't been able to find a summer internship. So of course we could send messages to a couple of people and have detailed responses, but instead we thought of different ways in which we can impact more people and help them get their questions answered. I think we also saw a huge increase in the number of schools that reached out because every school no longer had info sessions anymore. Most companies weren't hosting on-campus recruiting events. And so the question became, how do students get that same face-to-face interaction with professionals that they would have gotten if they're on campus, but not anymore because they're virtual? To respond to the increased demand, they brought on more team members and started experimenting with new initiatives. For example, they created a job board which segmented their job-seeking advice by topic. They also started a speaker series that was broadcast on LinkedIn Live and invited industry leaders, recruiters, and students to speak about how to network and recruit during COVID. And they even got creative by trying to borrow from trending Instagram challenges. The pay it forward challenge is something that I started because I recognize that most people are probably going to have a lot of time on their hands. There's a lot of people doing random challenges on Instagram where it's like, hey, tag four people and like share your favorite type of cheese or whatever. And I realized that, hey, if I can, and of course, the, the, there was a huge growing need of people who just needed some guidance from professionals. I can't scale my time because I only have a limited amount of hours in a day. Same with Jonathan. So we were like, dude, like it'd be dope for us to create a challenge similar to what it's like on Instagram to inspire the next generation of people or the next generation of leaders to just give them a really easy way for them to give back. The rules for the pay it forward challenge were simple. Create a one hour time slot on your calendar. Make a LinkedIn post with the hashtag OneSaltingPayItForward to allow others to find the calendar and book time. And finally, tag five others who would be willing to accept the challenge. What you began to quickly see is that like everyone was willing to help, assuming that they were able to get over that mental hurdle of like, this is going to be one of my first few posts, right? And so that's one of the things I really liked about the challenge is that you began to see people's willingness to help because you just gave them an opportunity, an easy in to help. Through the Pay It Forward Challenge, over 80 professionals 
open up their calendars to speak to job seekers. In particular, the challenge spurred those who had never before posted on LinkedIn to share their stories and give back. As a result, what started out as just two people providing advice over messaging quickly became a community. We try our best to make sure that people understand that, hey, career is not a a one-man, one-woman journey where you land your dream job and you're out, you're done you're done for the day, right? But rather it's more about, hey, we are in this together. Jobs, job search pains aren't just limited to just you individually, but once you've made it, make sure that you give back, right? And for a lot of my friends who are currently in like really senior roles or even just really amazing positions at companies, like I encourage them to be like, hey, like, do you want to join one of our speaking engagements that we have with the school? And a lot of them are receptive because they're like, huh, like this is, I, I, I get a really easy way for me to impact 50, 100, 150 students. And what they began to realize after that is that, hey, actually helping people isn't as hard as I think it is. And so now we're almost cultivating a culture of, hey, I invest into you. And the only thing I ask in return is that you try to just pay it forward, right? When you make it. And we've seen this happen time and time again, where people start creating more content on LinkedIn, or they start getting more engaged with their local community or schools, because at the end of the day, we're all in this together, right? Our success isn't purely determined by our own personal success, but it's but determined by the impact that we're able to have for other people. That spirit of in it together goes a long way. As it turns out, Creating content on LinkedIn and engaging with communities didn't just help job seekers who were feeling down, but even Jonathan and Jerry in their moments of burnout. A lot of it had just had to do in regards to, number one, the speaker series we did two months ago was just really long. And we had like three workshops in a day, which I don't know why we did three workshops in a day, but that was insane. Um... Number two, just a lot of different things in regards to just missing family too, because I hadn't seen them in a while. And then, yeah, it's number three, just some personal things like life just, life just, I don't know why, life just hit me all of a sudden. I was like, dang, like this is, this is crazy to say the least. I spoke to a therapist and she gave me a lot of ways to think about or how I should be thinking about my work-life balance but more importantly, the work-life mental balance. The first, literally, my therapist told me to do this and said, look at your left foot and say thank, and look at your right foot and say you. And starting your day off with just being grateful helps shape the way that you think about things so much. The second thing that I think really helped me was to realize that everyone is going through this together, that you are not alone that this is not something that's happening in isolation. This is something that is affecting everybody. That's Jonathan and Jerry from One Salting. Following the Pay It Forward challenge, they now have a new initiative called One Salting Project 2020. You can check out the One Salting LinkedIn page for more details.
A huge thanks to all our guests for speaking with us, and to you, the listener, for tuning in. Next time on Side Effects, we'll be exploring our current reality, that of the continuing threat of coronavirus and the second wave here in America. Side Effects is produced by Catherine and Nancy Shu, along with Joshua Chan and Sam Yellowhorse Kessler. Our marketing department is Miranda Pan, along with Katrina Wu, who creates original designs for each segment. You can check those out on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at the handle at SideEffectsPod. That's at S-I-D-E-E-F-F-E-C-T-S-P-O-D. Until next time, stay safe and healthy.